Hey all you gals and guys, Grayson Parker Marcotte here. I am thrilled to finally present to you all the very first installment of Number One Wednesday. In our first episode of Number One Wednesday, we're going to be covering X-Men Number One from 1963 with my good friend Brian Byerly of Marvel Mythos Podcast. I hope you guys enjoy. Brian, are you there? Hey, Grayson. Yeah, I'm here. Excellent. Thank you for joining me this evening for the inaugural episode of Number One Wednesday. Uh, no, no, no. The The pleasure is mine, so thank you for having me on for this. Absolutely. Uh, those of you listening and uh, yourself, of course, Brian, you probably have heard me talk about Number One Wednesday uh, <laughs> at length, I'm sure. It's a hashtag I started probably about two years ago, and I realized that it belonged almost exclusively to me on Instagram. Um, so instead of just posting comic covers all the time, I was like, you know, I could probably turn this into something, and and here we are. Well, I'm glad that you did, because when you started talking to me about the idea behind it, I thought it sounded really um, innovative and like a lot of fun, honestly. Cool. I'm, I'm glad you think so, and... Um, I want to start with X-Men number one because I've been on a huge X-Men kick lately and um, and I thought that X-Men number one would be the best place to start and you would be the best person to talk to about it. I genuinely appreciate that. I, I, and I know like some people might be like, well, if you're talking about Marvel, why don't you start with Fantastic Four? And I totally get that argument. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the X-Men are more relevant, I think, um, in any era than the Fantastic yeah. Four have been. And I think the X-Men will always be that way. And I think they're they're always going to be more relevant than the Avengers, even though the Avengers might have hit a peak in popularity. The X-Men have a way of connecting with people that those other ones don't. Certainly with something like Civil War, they are, I suppose, contemporary, or excuse me, relevant in a, in a more contemporary sense. But I think you're right. X-Men just has this sort of ability to fit itself in at almost any point in time and any political climate. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at it from just when it launched, right, in 1963, you mm -hmm. had a lot of the um, civil rights movements going on with, uh, you know, all the backlash and all that going on there. And then you have in the 70s, and uh, Claremont takes over and like you're still dealing with that because like Storm takes over and you have the first really female African-American leading a team in comics as far as I understand it. And then like nowadays you actually get it in a more um, different approach than race. You get it in, you know, gender and um, sexuality and that type of thing where anyone who feels like an outcast or a minority has something to relate to when it comes to the X-Men. And you don't always get that in comics, but you definitely get it with X-Men, which makes them kind of transcend time. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's to me is one of the beautiful things about it. And I think that's maybe why I keep coming back to X-Men, you know? Um, I mean, like you said, when at the time, in 1963, you had a sort of a very, uh, how would you say, there was a lot of friction between a lot of different groups. As you mentioned, civil rights. And uh, I know that some people don't agree with this, and even I don't agree with it to an extent, but the idea of uh, positioning Professor Xavier as the sort of uh, Martin Luther King character and then uh, Magneto as kind of the uh, Malcolm X character, and this is later, of course, in the series that you know that you could compare the two. Um, I think there was still some some inspiration. I think uh, as far as those two people are concerned, but even you know in the '60s, you know, uh, apart from race, you know, you still had issues of uh, gay rights and 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 people being marginalized and treated like they weren't human beings. Um, so th there's a whole a whole plethora of things as as you mentioned, um, <laughs> which is funny to me because uh, like you had mentioned X Men being timeless, and I'm reading X Men number one, and <laughs> there are several instances, say with Jean Grey, um, <laughs> that would not fly today, and we'll talk about those um, in a moment, of course, but 
it's funny how even X-Men has evolved past some of the, um, how would you say, more chauvinistic attitudes of decades past. Yeah, definitely. And as as writers change and move in, that kind of naturally happens, right? Um, with Stanley and Jack Kirby being on the first ones. And then I think it was mm-hmm. Roy Thomas after that when it failed. And then uh, Lynn Wein and Chris Claremont bringing it back from the dead. So, and, and that's really, honestly, the Claremont era is when it really started to push forward um, progressively right. in my eyes. Oh, I, I agree completely. Um, so let's talk about the cover of X-Men number one very quickly. Um, it's a beautiful cover, I think. I mean, you know, the the art has certainly evolved since days gone by, but what Jack Kirby was able to do with the team versus Magneto, like the the framing of this illustration is beautiful, and it captures... It just captures the team magnificently. I mean, to be such a, a more simplistic drawing, I absolutely love it. I would agree with you. And to to think about it right now, I'm thinking about it from the perspective like you've got it kind of over the shoulder of Magneto and almost like a third-person shooter if you play video games kind of framework there where it's like literally right over the shoulder that almost gives you just just not quite but almost – like a point of view of Magneto and you see the team coming at you. So it's like, Hey, here's this new team and they're coming at you and they're coming at you hard. What is kind of funny about it is like angel is carrying what, like a a missile launcher or something. (laughs) Yes. Like a bazooka (laughs) or RPG or something. Yeah. (laughs) Which would not work at all with Magneto. I'm just saying. No, no. And what's really strange about that is the, the cover seems to kind of showcase each of, each of their powers or abilities. Uh, Cyclops is firing an optic blast at Magneto. He is absorbing it, or you would think it would be deflected, but he's absorbing it with his force field. Iceman's throwing snowballs. Beast is swinging, and then you know, Angel's got his, uh, <laughs> his his rocket launcher for some reason. <laughs> yeah, but he is I, flying. I, I, I think I think it was just to give the idea that he's attacking, maybe like instead of right. just flying around. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it would have been easy to demonstrate an ability for him. And this kind of brings us back to Jean, where she's just kind of back there, like ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> and she definitely was not. Um, she was not handled well during this particular uh, time of the X Men, and and that even changes over the course of. The next several issues, but even still, um, it can be a little embarrassing to to read some of that. So, the cover says that you should not miss this fabulous first issue. It is done in the sensational, fast, fantastic four style. Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, you had mentioned Fantastic Four, and, and maybe why wouldn't someone start there? Um, so, the Fantastic Four was first published in 1961, and they were the first team created. Um, by Kirby and Lee with the X-Men following suit in in 63 and the the issue number 1 starts with uh, Professor Xavier front and center and he summons the X-Men to him and they all sort of materialize from nowhere seemingly um, <laughs> but in kind of their own way you know Iceman slides down a pole made of ice Angel flies okay. in before you go on, sorry, I hate to interrupt, but the Iceman on the pole thing. Okay, like this is what I noticed about that. That okay. pole does not reach the ceiling. No. And even if it did, that would imply there was a hole in the ceiling for him to come down. So does Iceman literally just like walk up to Xavier and then create an ice pole and then slide down it literally right next to him? Yeah, I was perplexed by that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it did, like, I understand artistically what they were trying to accomplish, um, but it. <laughs> Yeah, it does raise like a whole lot of logistical issues of concerning <laughs> location and, you know, the positioning of holes throughout the uh, the expansion. But then you have Beast that's just like swinging in through a window. Like so <laughs> where was he previously? That's I'm just having trouble with it. <laughs> so, but again, I'm reading a comic book from 1963, so Suffice to say that my disbelief has been suspended pretty considerably. Fair enough. Um, 
so so the x-men pop up we have cyclops angel iceman and beast uh noticeably missing from the roster at this point is is jean gray or marvel girl as she's known uh in the 60s so basically what we get is a brief introduction of the team um and they are showcasing their powers and abilities in the danger room one at a time and each one has obstacles or foils designed specifically for them like beast has sort of a a mounted obstacle course um angel has to fly uh, as fast as he can performing evasive maneuvers um while being timed by xavier and so on and so forth so it's a pretty cool introduction it introduces you to the concept of a team that trains uh in this facility it introduces you to the concept of each team member's individual power so what did you think about that introduction of the team in this first issue so yeah i that's actually one of the things that i wanted to highlight i think that lee and kirby do a really good job of letting everyone know that who these new characters are and what they can do i think they do a pretty solid job over the first 10 and a half pages, kind of breaking down um, the names, their abilities, and a little bit of insight into most of the characters. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, with Iceman, you get that he's a practical joker. So there's this mm-hmm. moment going on when Beast is doing his training, and he's, um, and then, so like Beast finishes, and then like Iceman wants to, I think, go through some training or something. And Xavier's like, no, 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 no. Go over there and hang out because you're younger than the rest, whatever. Right. And it's like this, it's it's actually a test for Iceman and he doesn't realize it. And Iceman goes over and he like starts to turn himself into a snowman or something. And yeah, Beast, he's got buttons and a carrot. Yeah. Like, why, why were you packing that around, man? You were planning this all along. So then Beast throws a bowling ball at him or something and he turns yeah. a, a shield out of ice or snow and it ricochets back. Um, but the idea of being there, like it's actually showing a, a really cool way of seeing their powers or a lot of fun way and seeing their powers and then, um, establishing that Iceman is the practical Joker. And then you actually see, um, like hints of struggles that are going to go on or be in the series for a long time with like Cyclops and Angel, mm-hmm. where Cyclops is clearly the Boy Scout leader of the group, which the 90s show got it right. He is a Boy Scout leader, at least back in the day. And yes. he, he and Angel are jockeying for Xavier's affection. And Angel, you can kind of tell that he wishes he was the leader. And maybe he, at one point, you know, was kind of groomed that way, being um, of a lineage that would kind of imply that he would, uh, that we learn later. But, like, they're, they're literally jockeying to be Xavier's favorite, like, by reclining the chair for him, getting him a blanket and all this stuff mm-hmm. where they're clearly sucking up. And um, to your point... There's a lot about Gene in this that clearly shows the era of the times, right? But right. I, I did think in some ways it was a maybe a hint in the right direction. Um, that it's kind of there, but not enough. Where she's very independent, where like Cyclops right. went to get her a chair or something, and she uses her telekinetic abilities to pull it from him and get it for herself. And she's like, "No, I can get my own chair. I can do my own thing." So. In some ways, I'm like, there's a little hint of what, you know, um, the future would entail for, like, women in comics, but it just wasn't strong enough in it because, like you were saying earlier, um, just some of the way that she acts, like, when she shows up, they're all oogling after her, and right. she literally looks in the mirror, like, to check her makeup. Like, she's got a little yeah. hand mirror, and she checks <laughs> her makeup. No, I, I actually, I do agree with you. Uh, about that because I I did I read this actually a few times before I I was ready to do this and um, the only thing honestly that bugs me is how w- when they're training and they finish their training and you know Xavier's like all oh, right you you all did great basically now we have a new student and he says specifically a most attractive young lady he's a creep. so i mean but now i'm looking at this a little differently since you mentioned that and it makes me wonder if he's saying that to get a rise out of them and see how they handle it but i mean sometimes you have to take things at face value and um 
Take and that one at I, face value. <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I am. So that was a little weird and a little creepy. Um, but you are right. I think when they meet Gene and they, you know, they're, they're you know, just kind of awe stricken by her. Um, it, she, she does foil their ridiculousness and, and their ham fisted advancements or advances, excuse me, pretty, pretty well, I think. So she does hold her own. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah, and the the Xavier's comment, uh, most attractive, most was it most attractive young lady or something like right. that. Um, that is such a creepy statement to make coming from him because you got to understand, like he's a doctorate, right? Like he's got a doctorate, he's right. a professor, he's really wealthy, and he is recruiting uh, students who are between the ages of sixteen and eighteen. And if right. I remember right, Gene is like seventeen. Um, I don't remember her age, but it's a very irresponsible and inappropriate comment for someone in his position to make. Yes, extremely. And like, you know, we're going to we're going to retcon this and say he was trying to get a rise out of him. But I I think you're right (laughs) at the face value thing. Like, I think it really is just that. And especially, I mean, like um, during the Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza days, they bring this comment back. I think it was kind of long buried. And then that kind of relationship between the two of them come back i'm not going to spoil anything but like that whole okay yeah that, that all that all makes a comeback eventually just you know like 30 years later it, it kind of has to you know like to save some kind of face at least because because with these older issues believe me i'm i'm reading them and a lot of what i'm reading i'm taking with a pretty big grain of salt because i'm like okay you know, this was a long time ago. Yep. I'll I'll allow it. <laughs> you know, like it's history. I can't change it. Um, but yeah. So the interesting thing about the introduction with Gene is that the the writing uses it as um, it uses that as as a vehicle for further exposition. So Professor Xavier starts explaining that. You know, it's it's an exclusive school for um, special people, um, and he implies that mutants are the result of exposure to radioactivity. Um, he actually says that his parents worked on the A bomb, and that he discovered he was a mutant, possibly the first. So, the first issue, you can see very clearly that there wasn't a lot of uh, thinking or planning for what was going to come. Um, cause I'm, I'm sure when they were putting this together, they didn't even know how long it was going to last. I mean, I'm, I have to be of that assumption. Um, and he also says that the X in X-Men actually stands for the extra abilities that mutants have, which I thought was cool because I always assumed that he was just self-absorbed and the <laughs> X was for Xavier, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, Honestly, that's probably what it was, and he just made up a reason to to make it something different. And then, like, I think, I think there's actually arguments to be made that um, it comes from the X gene, but that's um, mm-hmm. reading back into the text. You know, uh, he clearly does say it's the extra power piece. And then, um, to kind of what you were uh, talking about before, where he's um, laying it all out there, right? What what's you know using Gene as this vehicle for exposition. Um, to mm-hmm. kind of establish everything. Uh, it's kind of reminds me a little bit of, but not totally, the animated series using Jubilee in the same type of capacity. Oh, uh, yeah, the new one. exactly. And then um, the other point that you made where clearly, you know, they didn't have the foresight to know that this was going to be a huge thing, so there wasn't a ton of depth provided in their histories. What I think is kind of funny is that Stanley himself has made comments about how the idea for the X-Men came about because he was lazy and was tired of coming up with these ways for um, people to get power. So he thought, what if they're mm-hmm. just born with it? But then even in this, he uses the same kind of tropes that he was using before where it has to do with like nuclear radiation or the A-bomb and whatever. And I'm like, wow, dude, you couldn't have just said like, they were just born that way. Like, why, right. why not? Like you, you lead it there, but now you're saying they were born that way because of these other things. Um, but I, I think if if I'm remembering correctly, there was some pushback to what he was trying to do with the X-Men. And you'll have to forgive me. I'm not as studious as I could or probably should be. Um, so I think that there was some give and take there. 
as far as naming of the uh, naming of the book and 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 the characters and whatnot. Um, but again, I, I don't remember um, the depth to which uh, to which that traveled. Um, I wanna I want to say that once we get the introduction to Gene and Xavier is explaining uh, what they are or and and what the what the school is. He takes an opportunity to say, so, you know, we, we're fighting for the side of good and we want to make sure that the bad guys, the, the mutants that don't share this vision of, of peace between uh, Homo Superior and Homo Sapiens, um, he takes the opportunity to touch on them. And that actually segues into the introduction of Magneto. So before we move into that segment, was there anything else that you wanted to add about the uh, about the school in the beginning? Yeah, the only other thing that I would point out is that um, we kind of touched a little bit on like what we know now and reading back into what was being right. said. And um, I know at the time, I really do not believe that this is what they were trying to show with Iceman. But uh, yes. looking back, you can kind of infer it or or kind of create this false narrative if you want. But... Iceman is the only one that's not all about Jean when she shows up. Right. I did and, make a note of that. Yeah. And like, he's very like, you guys are stupid. Like, this is dumb. Whatever. You can yeah, fight Yeah, he's over. like, I'm not a wolf like you guys. Yeah, exactly. And and I know, like, just from what, what the way that I'm interpreting it is, they've kind of upped the ages a little bit so that it's a little less appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. Or a little more appropriate than it could have been, right? Because eventually they say, you know, this this kicks in at puberty. And the way that Iceman kind of acts is like somebody who's like on the cusp of puberty where he's still like, mm-hmm. girls are icky. I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. Right. Like, you guys are dumb. Like, bros first. But again, because of what we know with Iceman's future, looking back at it, you can kind of make the, the argument right. that the writing was on the wall. I, so. I know you can. And... I think what I'd like to do is when we talk about how the series has evolved, I want to go back to that. Perfect. Um, but, uh, but I will say right now that if you're 16, you already know what you want to do <laughs> and, and who you want to do it with. I mean, those things, I think, in your mind, those wheels are already turning at 16. Maybe, maybe he was a late bloomer, but if so, I'm just saying, I'm no doctor but that seems pretty irregular. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm, I'm saying like, I feel like they kind of almost aged them up to make it less yeah. ap- or more appropriate for them being f- superheroes fighting against the evil. Okay. Movies. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, I think I misunderstood you the first time. Yeah. Cause I said it the wrong way. Um, but yeah, like the idea being like really the way that he's writing these characters or if they're like 12 to 15, um, and the way that they're acting and treating each other, because I mean, how many 18 year old guys do you know are going to recline some old dude's chair for him? Like, well, I don't know. they seem like good lads. <laughs> they are. They're Boy Scouts. They do. They do. Um, so yeah, actually, since you mentioned that, the only thing that I want to that I want to say before we move forward, um, two things actually. Uh, you had already mentioned that we really get the established character traits that these that these individuals will carry with them pretty much till today. I want to ask you about Cyclops and his, his visor. Okay. Has he always used a lever on his visor? Because I know in the cartoon, he would always put his hand up to the visor. And then in this, you see that there is in fact a lever that opens the visor to allow the optic blast out. Yes. So if you think about it, it makes sense that he would have to, right? Because the idea yeah. is that, that that ruby quartz is blocking it from coming out. So right. the way in which that it would come out is you have to manipulate it and move it. Um, what eventually? I would think so. Yeah. So you'll see a lot of comics um, later on where he's not touching the visor and it's opening. Well, that's because at some point there's like um, a little trigger or a button put into mm-hmm. his glove. So there's like a, you know, it's like a cheap way of saying he doesn't have to touch his visor anymore. He just has to like tap this little button. Right. Freeze up the artists. Yes, exactly. Okay. I can, I I can respect that. I just was never sure because, you know, like you said, you, you see so many times where he's not. And that always confused the hell out of me when I was a kid 
because I was like, well, which is it? <laughs> you know? uh, it confused uh, me for decades, and I didn't learn that until, you know, probably like a few years ago. But honestly, at this point, I'm like, why don't they just say that, like, they've created some kind of um, brainwave sensing ability on the visor for him to just, you know, control it with his mind? It wouldn't be far-fetched even for X-Men, so you're absolutely right. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that... Uh, that one of the excuse me two of the things that we see in this issue that do change very abruptly is that uh hank mccoy beast is not so eloquent in this first issue and it's clear that he's not the science loving poetry reading uh gentleman that he or that we know him as these days yes uh, the one trait of his that I do think stuck around mostly, it's not as strong as it used to be, but it did last for quite a while, was that he has a sense of like jovialness to him where he is kind oh, of yeah. playful. And that kind of shines through here. And, and But yeah, to your point, like the main things that people think about with Beast, they're not here. No, but it does change. It changes very quickly. I think even by like the second issue. Um, maybe not that quick. It might be the third or fourth, but I'm, I'm almost positive that it's, it changes on, it's like a 180 degree change very quickly. Um, the only other thing is the name of Cyclops, which they had, I understand that slim is a nickname, but I don't think you hear Scott at all in the first issue. So I thought that was interesting. Oh, very. I hadn't thought of that or noticed that even. And that's that's it. Those are the only things I wanted to uh, touch on as far as the school and the beginning go. So if you're ready, we can enter Magneto, as the kids say. I hope the kids aren't saying that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess they shouldn't. I just I remember that was always something that you that you would read in the comics. And I think it was the title of one of the cartoons. It was uh, episode three, season one. Oh, man, look at you. God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so uh, let's see here. We have Magneto. And what can I say about Magneto in this comic other than he is far from the Magneto that we know today? I would say, interestingly, his costume is almost spot on to the one that we know today. Well, actually not today because it's radically different, but... Um, that color scheme and that design, uh, it does change up in some of the illustrations to a degree over the next several issues, but this is the one that seems to stick for the longest. Um, apart from that, he is very much a mustache twirling bad guy. Yeah, like the, the nuance that we know Magneto for is not there. He is just your megalomaniac sociopath who wants to take over the world or make, you know, or allow mutants to take over the world. So that part kind of is still there, like at least his motivation, but his Mm -hmm. personality is drastically different. Oh yeah. He has understandable, very understandable reasons for feeling the way that he does, (laughs) Uh, but not so much in this. He's just sort of like, homo sapiens must bow. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's about it, you know. I mean, I can see him wringing his hands and twirling his mustache. He's got um, an evil pet cat somewhere, right? Like, isn't that what they all he do? He has to. He has to. Um, so basically, that's his motivation. I mean, Xavier is telling the kids about these bad mutants uh, who don't want to use their powers for the betterment of uh, of the people of Earth, and then it just sort of it naturally segues into uh, into the scene with Magneto talking about how the human race no longer deserves dominion over the planet earth the day of the mutants is upon us so i mean that's exactly what he's trying to do and this his plan is to overthrow this fictitious military base uh cape citadel and i want to be honest with you i don't know exactly what his plan is outside of just taking the base and blowing stuff up like it doesn't seem to be much more involved than that did i miss something no no you didn't that's basically it i think the idea was to instill fear in them to where they might Mm -hmm. bend to his wishes because he takes this over and he now controls the missiles and and all that stuff but no i think it was more of like he just wanted people to start knowing who he was and what his goal was and to have fear in him so that maybe when he comes back and has a better motivation or a better plan, that it would go smoother? I don't I don't know. 
Yeah, it's uh, it it seems a little haphazard at this particular juncture. But with that said, we get some awesome images of Magneto. Um, some of the ways that they choose to present him in these illustrations is just badass. And I'm not generally impressed by a lot of what I see visually in these books. And I'm not saying anything disparaging of or towards Jack Kirby. Don't misunderstand. Um, It's just, you know, when you're talking in terms of what we're able to print now um, and the, and the depth of colors and the range of colors that we're able to use in comics, et cetera. I mean, you have to admit it's visibly different. Um, Oh, drastically. Yep. But, uh, but yeah. and, And that's, what's so awesome about some of these drawings is like, you really get a sense of, uh, just the awesome power of Magneto, like when he's throwing around these tanks and he just marches into the base and everyone's firing on him and he's just casually striding with his chest out um, into this group of people firing at him. I love that. Uh, it, it really establishes how powerful he is. And all I could think uh, rereading this is, man, they really nerfed Magneto over the years because... Like, um, he calls himself the miraculous Magneto, which I'm glad that did not stick. Um, yes, but he's in his base and he actually, I don't even remember everything that he does, but I think there was like a rocket that was deploying and he takes control Mm -hmm. of it and crashes it into the water for no reason. And he's miles away, literally miles away and viewing this from like, I guess a TV or something, some kind of screen. Um, cause it's not like he's outside looking at it. He's in his base. So that's pretty significant, right? That he can literally just feel that far away, a shift in, you know, the magnetic field or whatever. Yeah, or metal. I actually, I mean, I've read this three times now and I, <laughs> whoops, I didn't consider that because the, the, the panel right here, uh, where that happens, it, the rocket crashes towards a, um, an unmanned target ship and, the text reads that he is demonstrating a power which the human brain is almost unable to comprehend. Magneto causes the grim rocket to fall into the sea many miles from the shore next to an unmanned target ship. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's like a uh, Jedi Master level force projection. Yeah, right? Like, that's that's Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan style. Um, and then, to your point, he eventually just goes to the base, and he's strolling in, and, like, you see these little waves around him, like little black wave lines around him that's propelling the the bullets from hitting him, and he's just taking over everybody's guns to where one can't even lift it up because it feels so heavy to him. And then he takes... Uh, I guess it's like a magnetic field somehow. They describe it differently. And he just like wraps all of them up inside of it and they can't get out. So they're all like, you know, um, next to each other, like literally pushing into each other, trying to get out of this and they can't. And I'm like, man, I don't ever see him do this force field type stuff anymore. And he was just, he was an utter BA in this, in this, even if he didn't have the same nuance to his character, his abilities right. are just insane. No. And, and I was actually going to mention that to you. Um, and since you did bring that up, I think that he uses that ability again in X-Men black. I, I don't remember with Supreme clarity, but I think that he may, I'm going to actually go back and, and look that up. Um, after after we wrap this up, because I want to know, since you mentioned it, if, if that is something that happens again. And But X-Men Black leapt into my head immediately, so we'll see. Um, so, okay, about his powers. It seems like Magneto is one of those characters that, and especially in this book, that his powers seem to change based on <laughs> the convenience um like storytelling convenience or to make a point. Does that, does that seem right? Yeah. I mean, I I think ultimately you kind of get that um, with just about any character in comics that has an ability. And it's more so I think um, applies to the writers as they change. And I've actually Mm -hmm. read um, different editors talk about how annoying or, or how not annoying, but how difficult it can be. Because each writer that comes in and writes a character wants to kind of do something new that the reader hasn't seen with that person's abilities or their powers. Mm -hmm. 
And so what ends up happening is you get a whole list of things that like over time, just basically everybody would become an Omega mutant or like out of this world powerful. And, you know, at some point that has to kind of be nerfed. And I think you kind of get that a lot with like Magneto. And I think you get it a lot. I think I want to say with Iceman um, as well, eventually. Um, But yeah, where they just they get really creative and they write themselves into a situation where, oh, crap, you know, like now this guy technically could probably beat anybody in the world. So how is that fun? Exactly. And and Magneto is, is no different. I think. At least, uh, and this is where, because of my love for him, I'm going to defend him, at least the ideas behind it are always rooted in magnetism um, or the manipulation of metal. I think that's where I would argue against uh, or for him in favor against someone like Doom, where I literally cannot figure out what Doom's powers are based on. It seriously is just kind of whatever. (laughs) Right. Literally. It's just literally whatever. If you've ever read, um, I think it's Secret War, um, Secret Wars or whatever, way back in the day, and Mm -hmm. he fights the Beyonder. And I'm like, what? Doom is going against the Beyonder right now. Uh, What? And it's, but anyway. I'll I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a can of worms. But I will agree with you wholeheartedly that uh, depending on who's writing him, things change. And I will even say that there are moments where they kind of um, infuse or inject something that kind of explains why his powers might be dampened down at mm-hmm. points. Um, but it's it's really hard to figure out where he's at on his power spectrum depending on where you're reading. Yeah. Well, I mean, there. Magneto is probably, and I'm not going to say the only mutant, but for the sake of time, he is one of the only mutants that I can really think of that I could say there's no choice but for them to be an Omega-level mutant. I mean, when you think about the concept of magnetism and the Earth's magnetic field and how things like electricity, for example, um, are dependent on and reactive to to a degree... Um, of those things like he could almost do anything (laughs) yeah i mean if you got creative enough and i i I think that's tremendous have you ever read ultimatum from the uh, ultimate line no i haven't um it's basically what you're talking about magneto is the one of the big bads in the ultimate line and he just kind of gets fed up and he um literally flips the poles like north and south Mm -hmm. i think is what it is um, something along those lines of the axis or something. And like literally millions upon millions of people die within minutes because it just totally destroys the entire earth, more or less. Like Whoa. tsunamis, earthquakes, everything. It just goes crazy. And he's literally just chilling on his throne wherever that's at. I can't even remember. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that was intense. the one I'm like, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what Magneto could do if he wanted to do it. Like the, uh, I, I will, I will check that out. That is on. I'm working up to that, but I've got some decades to go before I get back to uh, get back to the <laughs> ultimate line. Um, and and to be honest with you, the reason why I mention this is because there's a moment in the comic of X Men One where he writes a message to the military, and he does so by magnetizing dust particles <laughs> and writing. In the sky, surrender the base or I'll take it by force. Signed in lovely cursive handwriting, Magneto. <laughs> I love so. that it's in cursive for his name. Like, like it's a legit signature. But. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's pretty amazing. Um, so, okay. This is where we get the... And this is the first test of, of the, uh, the X-Men and their metal, so to speak. Um, Professor Xavier, you know, he says that the time has come for them to uh, to face Magneto. He's revealed himself, and uh, they will be testing themselves excuse me, in battle against him. Which, okay, first, I think that's a horrible idea <laughs> <laughs> to send these untested children against Magneto, who you clearly have some knowledge of. And if you do, you should know that that's just not a good call. But as we know from some of the comments that Professor Xavier has made, he's not always the most responsible person. Um, so th- their fight is really interesting um, in that not a whole lot happens. And I don't know how to sum it up apart from saying that they throw everything they have at Magneto and nothing works. 
<laughs> you know, he's basically just able to swat them away um, like flies. Now, I will say that over the course of the fight, they are able to begin coordinating their attacks with one another, which I think was cool to see. Um, mm. And it really only serves to foil Magneto and not necessarily to beat him. Um, the only thing that sticks out in my mind is as, as being totally ineffective is Angel does absolutely nothing uh, during this whole fight. He dodges some, <laughs> some rockets, and that's literally it. I, I don't think that he does anything else because throughout the issue, uh, you would almost be led to believe that at some point he's going to pick up a rocket launcher, and he does not. I think he just uh, gets shot at. Yeah. Yeah, he, he just kind of dodges these missiles that are coming and Iceman um, neutralizes them uh, so that they don't kill Angel. And then he's pretty much done after that. Yeah. the What what happens that I found most interesting, uh, because, you know, as we know, Magneto is defeated because of course he is. But some of the comments that he makes to himself while he's fighting them, uh, this one in particular he says, despite their seeming youth and inexperience, they are mighty antagonists. I must never again make the mistake of underestimating them, which I think is cool, you know? Yeah. Um, they can't beat him, but he knows that he can't take them all on simultaneously. So they're kind of at a stalemate, which I found to be really cool. But again, the thing that I like the most is towards the end of the fight, um, they start piggybacking their abilities off of one another's. Um, like Iceman uses the ice to freeze the missiles to uh, to take them off of Angel. Um, and then Beast starts grabbing missiles with his feet, and then Gene guides them uh, out over towards the water of the ocean so that they can detonate. So nothing really serious happened, but... They did work together, which I suppose you could say is a pretty cool thing to have happen in your first issue. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like they're they're establishing the team piece of it, right? That they're all going to be working together and ultimately kind of showing you what Xavier's tests are about, um, pushing them to their limits mm -hmm. and getting them to work together. And I think you kind of uh, and again, we kind of talked about how they did a really good job of establishing most of their personalities at the, the onset. I think the back half of it does a really good job of establishing their abilities and who ultimately is the most powerful um, on this particular team at this particular time. Because what you have is Magneto has created this force field that the military can't get through at all. And the X-Men are trying and basically they're failing until Cyclops decides to open up his visor completely and go full blast. Yes. And it actually pushes back enough into the force field to throw Magneto off. And it, it kind of, you know, that's really the moment where he's like, oh, crap. Like, I can't just yeah. you know, swat these people away completely. I got to, like, see what else they can do. And then um, you get all these moments, like you kind of already talked about with Beast and Gene. And you even get a moment where Magneto throws a um, rocket fuel tank at them. And yeah, then, like that's his last sort of Hail Mary. Yeah, exactly. Just It's more of like Magneto wanting to distract them. Because at the end of the day, like Magneto guides this missile earlier away from destroying life for whatever reason. And now he's kind of in this scenario where like technically he probably could kill these kids. Um, mm-hmm. But he's choosing not to, and it's almost like he's choosing to just distract them so that he can finish what he's wanting to do, which is establish this fear at Cape Citadel, and they keep stopping him when he's doing these these attempts to quit, get them to quit, and eventually he just leaves. Yeah, yeah. Actually, when he does that, when he throws the, the rocket fuel at them, and, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure that he knows that they have a high chance of dying outright <laughs> or being blown Fair up. point. Because he does say, I'll finish them in one fell swoop. <laughs> all right, <laughs> so, all right, all right. Good point, good point. I, I mean, looking back through the lens of what we know, though, and that's the thing about these first issues. You know, it's so far removed from what we know now. I think you're absolutely right. Like, knowing what we know now of Magneto, if if we assume that that's still the person that we're dealing with, I would say that you're absolutely right um, because that's totally in line with say something Ian McKellen's portrayal of Magneto would be about in the films. 
I mean, you know, so, like I so, can see that totally. So now looking at it from a different perspective, um, because I forgot about that line and, um, but he's not killing the humans. He only kills or right. attempts to kill those who stand a threat to him. So like humans, right. he doesn't feel as a threat, so he's not going to kill them. He wants to rule them. Mutants or the X-Men are a threat, so kill them so that they can't jockey for him in power. There we go. I'll go with that. So he does this. He does this thing where he throws the, the rocket fuel that you mentioned, and it explodes seemingly when it hits the X-Men. But what, it, what, had, what had happened was Cyclops <laughs> actually blasted a tunnel underground. They moved through it. And inside of Magneto's uh, like threat area, essentially, and um, so he just fucks off. Like he's like, "All right, nope, <laughs> nope, I'm done. No, that's it. Like um, I'm out of here." And I mean, that's literally what happens. He's just like, "I can't do this right now. I'm not gonna beat these kids." So he just he literally just up and gets out of there which i think is really cool like the first time i read it i thought it was super cheesy but you know like the second or third time that i read it i thought that it was uh it made sense because why keep prolonging this fight and it does establish whether they knew it at the time or not it does establish that relationship that they will carry from from then until you know present day almost yeah, that's a that's a really strong point. And I think to piggyback off what you're saying, normally you would expect the heroes to kind of stop the villain and actually like put them in prison or whatever it may be. Um, right. And they aren't unable to do that here. So you get kind of this like ability to continue to bring him back um, as their nemesis. So it's almost like they were kind of intending for him to be their arch nemesis all along, even though he kind of branches over into the Avengers for a mm-hmm. while um, during the old days, but yeah. And that, that is pretty much it. Um, the military personnel thanks them. They decide not to pursue Magneto because he could be anywhere. And, uh, and basically you get this mental projection of Xavier saying, um, you know, that they did a good job and that, um, he was proud of them. But of course, those sorts of threats would continue, etc. And that wraps up the issue. So it's actually a pretty quick read. Um, and we really get three major pieces, which I think is actually pretty well crafted. You get the introduction of the team, you get to know their personalities, um, you get introduced to potential threats, and then you have the, you know, the battle between the team that you met and the threats that were introduced. So it's pretty solid, I think. I mean, I'm not even going to approach the idea of rating these books i considered it um but i just don't think that it's fair to rate uh x-men number one and probably several other number one issues that i'm going to be doing in the future just because they're from so far back and things are just so radically different now i i I don't think it's fair um because it's obviously a classic i mean right yeah i mean i i definitely get where you're coming from there i think at the end of the day the the biggest thing that you could tell somebody is you need to go read it for yourself and maybe yeah, don't absolutely maybe don't read it once maybe read it sit on it for a little bit come back to it a couple of weeks later and read it again because it's really hard to get out of the mindset that we're currently in and go back and read old comics and it can really mess with the way that you read it to a sense where you're kind of judging it way harsher than you need to and mm-hmm. i think that's what I did as a kid reading this because I got one of those like cheap reprints right and read it and was like oh my Mm -hmm. god that's so lame why would anyone ever want to read that and then um, the more that I've come back to it and read it the more I appreciate it from a storytelling perspective because it does a really good job of like you said establishing the heroes establishing the villain and then having a battle that demonstrates their abilities and their their team teamwork yeah absolutely I mean you you could say that X-Men 1, the first film uh, from 2000 or 2001, uh, really kind of took that and ran with it. I mean, it's a feature film, so obviously there's a bit more depth and it's more nuanced. But So yeah, I think that the first X-Men movie did pretty well 
with that. Now, I'm not even going to hazard a guess as to exactly how many issues of X-Men have come out since 1963 to now. <laughs> and that's not to mention, you know, um, X-Force. That's not to mention the new X-Men. That's not to mention X-Factor, Generation X, New Mutants. Um, I'm not even going to attempt that. But I am curious if you would like to offer any insight that you have gleaned um, or that you'd like to share regarding the the future of these characters and and what we have now as far as the the uh, the mutant universe is c- concerned in, in Marvel comics. Yeah, I, I so um wow, where to begin with that question? Um Yeah. That is a little loaded. I will say that uh spoilers uh for anyone who may want to get into more modern stuff and haven't yet uh, be warned because that will that will occur in this. Um mm-hmm. I think Oh geez, where to begin? So some of the so all right, so we'll just do a quick like run through of some of the stuff that stands out in my mind um, as far as core X Men stories, and then maybe like how uh, some of these characters relate. There's like a mm-hmm. there's a there's a couple of classics, um, one or two during Stanley's time, and then like one or two during Roy Thomas's time. But in I think it was it was definitely Stanley's time when the Sentinels are introduced. I think it's around like issue fourteen or so. Um, mm-hmm. it's really early on, which blew my mind to think about that the Sentinels have been around that long, but I really think it's like a one or two issue, um, arc that even if you don't read the rest of the old stuff, um, before Claremont, I highly recommend reading that one. Um, because I thought it was masterfully written and honestly it had a, a very like horror ish vibe to it. Um, oh Yeah. Um, so extremely yeah, I know exactly well what you're talking about now. Yeah, I, that's with with Master Mold and the idea of humanity being the threat to itself. Yes, or which is, yep. is that is that what you're thinking of? Yep, exactly. And um, and it blew my mind that it was that early on because I'm like, holy crap, that was in like 1966 or so. Um, but and then later on, there's like a I think it's like the Powers of Three or something. Maybe not Powers of Three, but um, some storyline in which there's like three judges that. Um, Cyclops interacts with, I want to say, or something. Um, mm-hmm. But that's a little later on. But um, I think, uh, so I'll throw out a couple other highlights. There's one, um, specifically, obviously everyone knows the Phoenix and Dark Phoenix saga are the ones to go to in the Claremont era, but there's also a brood story around 160. I think it's like 161 to 166 or something like that. That brood story is one of my favorite of all times. Highly recommend that. That's very I'm Wolverine. getting there. Oh, you're not there yet. <laughs> I'm. I'm oh, no, man. I'm not. I took a long pause um, when I finished, uh, and it took me a long time to get through Uncanny. Um, and then I stopped reading X Men for a little while. I think I was just really kind of burned out um, because I was, I was, I was in whole hog. You know, like I wasn't just reading keys and skipping around. I'm like, nope, we are starting from one, and we are going, <laughs> <laughs> we are going into the future. Yep. You got um, so to take a part break. will be Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's going to get hard when we start dealing um with some of the Avengers and the Defenders and the Champions um because I'm not going to know which one I want to do first. But um you know, and then of course there's X Factor, I guess, in the 80s. Um so I'm I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but Yep. I did so, want to mention I was just going to say, so I will not say anything else about that bird story, so I don't ruin it for you. Ah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, maybe I'll skip ahead just a little bit and then go back, but I'm just so pig-headed that I probably won't and just plunge straight through. But um, So two things that I want to say. First, when I asked you for the insight into the X-Men from then up until now, I realized that you actually did a really good job explaining that at the beginning of this conversation and that... It doesn't seem to matter how the times change, but the X-Men always seem to remain relevant, and they always seem to have a place in comics. And that was probably the most eloquent way that you could have described it, I think. <laughs> so you kind of you, you kind of answered that question in advance. Which, by the way, I, and I mentioned this in another episode earlier, but have you... Uh, did you hear that comment that Claremont had made about how the X-Men aren't relevant now? No. I mean, yeah, that really, that just stuck in my craw. And I was like, dude, okay. (laughs) 
like, I, I don't understand how you, Chris Claremont, could make that comment. I'll, I'll dig it up and I'll find it because he was catching major hell on Twitter for saying that. And don't misunderstand. I know sometimes people say things and they're not thinking about the full implications of what they're saying. You know, like in in the context, maybe it made sense in his mind because I mean, it's Chris Claremont. I'm sure if he went back and thought about it, um, you know, he would. He, I mean, hang on now. I think Chris Claremont actually wrote that issue of X Men Black that I mentioned earlier, and it was super relevant. And that was that was last year, so I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Uh, the only um, thing I could but, so I think. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I saw a headline of it and I was like, nope, clickbait and moved on. Um, because the way that I looked at it and not even reading the context, I'm just like, oh, he's probably meaning like it's not relevant uh, in the sense of like pop culture because the way pop culture mm-hmm. has shifted to focus more on like the MCU. Um, so mm-hmm. like X-Men kind of got left in the dust there. Like that's just how like my brain justified it without reading the right. context. Um, but from what you're saying, and, and it that's like the, it was where, more than yeah. That. Well, and, and that's the thing too is like that's why when you hear stuff like that, you know, I always give the person the benefit of the doubt first, just because I know number one how people tend to blow stuff up in the media, and number two, I've said some dumb shit that if I would have just thought about it one more second before the words came out of my mouth, I would have <laughs> saved myself a lot of grief. <laughs> You know, he's like, probably just still bitter so, that like, you know, Jim Lee and, um, oh crap. Um, yeah, the Jim Lee took over for him, right? Like, and then left. Um, I've even heard him say something like if he would have just waited nine months, he would have had the job back. Um, mm. so he's probably still a little hurt about that, but I mean, they've brought him back and wrote and they yeah. have not held up to the standard that he maintained for such a long time. Before that, uh, I'm going to agree with that. Um, the other, the other two things that I want to mention, just because I think that they're very relevant to the discussion of X Men number one in these early issues. Um, two things happen before the Claremont area, or, or rather, I should say, at the start of the Claremont era, and that is Beast leaves to pursue his career in science um, when the new team is introduced, basically. Um, Angel is not having it, and uh, also Iceman leaves, I think, to pursue an education. Um, So they leave, and then, of course, and I don't want to get too far into the newer X-Men. You know, you're introduced to um, Sunfire and... uh, (laughs) It's Thunderbird. Is it? Warpath is his brother, correct? Yes. It used to drive me nuts. I could never remember it until I read some of the more recent X-Force runs, and I'm like, okay, now it's easy. Mm -hmm. I got it. Um, Okay, cool. And then, um, let's say he's of uh, Thunderbird, uh, Sunfire, Wolverine, of course, um, and then the addition of Storm, and I think, or Banshee, and I think that that's it. But anyway, the point is, we don't have Beast anymore, we don't have Iceman or Angel, and they were, you know, core members. And one of the biggest things that changes is that Beast is obviously very different these days from his introduction. And uh, I read the, uh, I read Amazing adventures um the stories that took place with hank mccoy after he left the x-men where uh in an effort to sort of change his mutation i think or halt it temporarily he ends up um he ends up turning blue and growing fur and being far more bestial so there are some there are some issues and there are some story arcs that take place outside of x-men um in those gap years uh, where those guys are not on the team that I think are worth reading. If you want the history of some of the characters, um, I had a fun time reading those. I mean, they are ridiculous, but I like to know these things. You know, I mean, they're really um, important, right? Because eventually they jump back in and you're like, why are these people so yeah. different and what the heck has been going on? Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and what's interesting about the beast thing is that, um, isn't it about like he creates the serum that's um, mm-hmm. that triggers like latent mutancy and um, you know I, I said that it was to change or to temporarily halt his mutation but I think I'm mixing it up with uh, X-Men 3 which is incredibly unfortunate um, but I think you're right I think that that is what it is um, I, I all I know is that it's meant to alter him on a genetic level 
and it goes oopsie. Yeah, so I think it was like a um, that it he's discovered that there's like latent mutancy genes or something along those mm-hmm. lines where like it just hasn't um, occurred. Um, and he's found a way to trigger that, but he also has like a serum to bring it back down. And, but you have mm-hmm. to administer the serum within an hour or something like that. And then, um, it just screws up and he doesn't get the yeah, serum. He gets he, waylaid. Yeah. But what's interesting about that to me is that means that he, that as far as the comics go, the idea of secondary mutation kind of existed way back in the 70s, not when, I think it was Grant Morrison brought it up in New X-Men. Yeah, it it definitely wasn't new. And that's one of the things you get about reading some of the older comics is there are things that you've taken for granted as being newer that weren't at all, (laughs) which I think is really cool. Um, There is one more thing that I want to talk about before we wrap this up. And I know that we were shooting for a specific time uh, for these episodes. But you know what? This is the first episode, and I don't mind if it goes over a little bit. You can cut all of it out. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to close by going back to a point that you had made about Bobby, because I think that this is a very good example of how A, X-Men stays relevant, B, stories get retconned, and C, sometimes you have to take things at face value You know, um, when you read them, or when they're first published, I should say. So, At this point in X-Men, and I don't think it's going to change again because it really doesn't need to, Bobby Drake, Iceman, is a gay male. And this comes about in, is it the late 80s or early 90s? Or mid-90s? Ha! uh, When he comes out. Oh, it's not until like 2010-ish. Jeez, I have a really hard time gauging decades at this point, dude. I still feel like 1990 (laughs) was 10 years ago. Oh, dude, I know what you mean. That's really interesting because... When we first started talking about Iceman in the first issue, he's the only one that doesn't seem remotely interested in Gene. Um, he just, you know, he just wants to be part of the team. He wants to prove himself, and he wants to have fun. Now, going back and looking at that, it makes me wonder if, when writers of a series like X Men, they go back and they read some of these early issues to find inspiration or find ends for stories that they may be wanting to develop. You stumble upon something like that, and then it just clicks, and you say to yourself, this is why. Um, I find that incredibly fascinating, and I'm glad that it was an X-Men character that sort of went underwent that, that character change, because I think that, again, it's a way to keep X-Men relevant, and it also adds far more depth to Bobby Drake slash Iceman. Uh, yeah, it does. And so to kind of piggyback on everything that you're saying, I think it was in all new X-Men um, right around. I think it was like the last issue that Brian Michael Bendis wrote. Uh, I want to say, mm-hmm. um, and it's when the time displaced X-Men are brought like the original five are brought to the present day. And it's actually the time displaced Iceman that comes out. And Gene, mm-hmm. like this, this version of Gene is very much different in the way that she handles things because um, she's like learned that the fate of her is to die and she doesn't, she's not mm-hmm. wanting that. So like she just starts using her powers in ways that the, the original gene that we know would never do. And she kind of like reads Bobby's mind and figures it out. And she's like, dude, just come on with it. And like, she just mm-hmm. brings it out of him. Um, but what's interesting to what you were saying is, is like how writers will read some of these old stories and maybe it clicks for the first time. Well, Scott Lobdell wrote an Iceman story um, involving Rogue in Uncanny 314-ish. Um, I might have the mm-hmm. number wrong, but it's somewhere in that ballpark where he go. He takes Rogue to visit his parents. And like he kind of presents her as like, like just in the way that the conversation happens between him and Rogue. You can kind of see like where Labdell was kind of hinting at that with Iceman. So I wonder if like Scott Labdell had done his research and saw these things with Iceman that even though he was interested in Lorna Dane when she showed up and then he dated Opal and some of these other relationships he had, maybe Scott mm-hmm. Labdell kind of saw some of the writing on the wall and was like, this would kind of work with this character because Scott kind of pushed things a little bit further than some people would do. Um, mm-hmm. and I think maybe that's what he was going for there. And eventually like maybe he just didn't push it further or maybe editors blocked him. I don't know, but eventually Bendis came along and I'm guessing Bendis read all that stuff too. And was like, no, this makes perfect sense. This needs to be what Iceman is. It's really funny. I had, 
I had a guest on the show earlier this month, uh, Steven Spratling from the Dead and Lovely uh, Horror Movie Podcast. And it was it's so funny because we were talking about Iceman in the first movie, and we had talked about what a, a piece of shit Brian Singer and Brett Ratner turned out to be. And uh, and he had quipped that, yeah, Brian Singer probably would have written Iceman a little differently if that had happened. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, um, before that movie had come out, he might have cut Iceman out altogether. Who knows? It turns out that that dude's a really big dipshit. Um, but uh, I'm yeah. glad I'm glad that things worked out the way that they did. I mean, that was still a good movie. And Iceman is still an awesome character that has endured um, from the very beginning. So I, I just, I'm just going to close this by saying that I love X-Men. Like it has rekindled or rather the, the pure joy that I had for X-Men when I was younger has been rekindled and, uh, and I'm, I'm loving it. I'm glad. I'm glad. And the final piece I wanted to say, and it never felt right, um, in the conversation, but I have to throw it out there because sure. I've never noticed it before. Like literally never noticed it before. But the way that, that Stanley writes Hank, um, Hank McCoy and Bobby Drake is like identical to how the thing and human torch interact. Just throwing that out there. Really? Like it's crazy. But yeah. Like the young like the younger versions in the in the earlier issues, like the sort of the way they go out together and hang and, and Yeah. Like their their friendship commiserate is, together and Yep. And how one the a human torch is essentially Iceman. Like they're literally like the same kind of thing where it's like the practical Joker piece where he's kind of picking um, at um, like human torch picks a thing and Iceman picks a Hank, but really they're best friends. And like, but yeah, the whole dynamic, I'm like, holy crap, never noticed that before, but that's pretty much the exact same thing. That's awesome. Well, I can tell you that I am going to go back and read the first several issues, at least of fantastic four um, because just this Marvel unlimited app is, it's the business. Like it's, <laughs> it's awesome. And if, you know, I just, and that's the thing too about comics is you, you get to a point where you like to know as much as you can, because it makes some things more interesting when you read them later. Um, and if you hadn't read those issues or if you haven't read the first few issues of something, you may get an inside joke or um, something that a character says that you wouldn't quite get fully if you weren't as familiar with uh, with some of the earlier stuff. And and then, you know, let's let's be honest, like at the end of the day, some of it's street cred. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. You know, I'm I'm not gonna lie to you about that and say that like my motivations are completely selfless and altruistic. No, it's it's also street cred. All about that street cred. I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. All right. Well, Brian, I gotta say, man, I am so grateful that you decided to join me for uh, this talk about the first issue of X Men on the first episode of Number One Wednesday. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'd love to be back on for X-Men number one when you cover 1991's version. Yeah, it will happen. <laughs> I don't know when, but it will happen. Oh, all right, Brian, you have a good night. Yep, you too. Well, gang, that is it. Thanks again to Brian Byerly for being here for this first episode of Number One Wednesday. I am so excited and so thrilled that we finally got this one down and we got it out to you all. I'm even more excited about what I'm going to be doing in the future because I've got some cool stuff lined up, some great comics with some great guests, and uh, look for these at least once a month. On Wednesday, we'll have a new number one Wednesday, at least one Wednesday out of the month. Y'all take care.